Good morning, Mercy House. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. God, we just, we praise you for your grace, your grace upon grace upon grace that we receive day in and day out, regardless of what we have done or haven't done that day, that you are faithful and constant and steadfast and true and powerful and holy and majestic and mighty. We praise you for that, Lord. I thank you that you have called each of us your own, that you have saved us and redeemed us, and um, yeah, that it's not in our own power that we can boast that we are saved, but it is you and you alone, Lord. And so I pray this morning that that would be made clear. I pray that as Tommy preaches, that he would be preaching the gospel, that it would be stirring in our hearts and our minds, that it would be transforming us and just helping us as we try to be new creations in you, Lord. Pray that you would guide Tommy, that your peace and boldness would be upon him, that your spirit would flow and empower him, Lord, that, um, yeah, he would be able to communicate your gospel in a way that pierces our hearts. And I pray that those of us listening would just, um, yeah, be able to listen in humility and to allow you to show us what you want to show us about yourself. Um, I praise you that you sustain us to the end as we are weary in many ways that we can know that you are God and that you are with us to the end, and we can rest and rely in that. And I praise you for that, Lord. And um, 
Yeah, God, I know there's no Mercy House kids going on right now, but I just pray for the kids of this church that they also would be learning of your um, your greatness and your love that you have for them, that you would just be saving them, Lord. And um, yeah, I just pray for this church, for each of us as we head out this week into our different spheres of influence, that we would be bringing your truth and your light and your gospel everywhere that we go, Lord, that we would just be having an impact in the world around us because we are images of you and we get to bring that wherever we go. And I pray that that would just be, um, yeah, that that would be seen and that that would bring peace and joy to the world around us that is lost and confused. And, um, yeah, I just praise you for all that you are doing. I praise you for this church that you have held us together, that we are fast in you, that it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, pastors come and go, and that that is okay because we are steadfast, and you are our foundation, our cornerstone, our anchor, our everything, Lord. And thank you for building up this church. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Mercy House. How are we? Well, it's very good to be back. I want to just say thank you to our elders for shouldering the teacher burden these past few weeks. They've been able to give me some time off from teaching, and I think I can say for all of us as a church that it's, it's been an incredible blessing sitting under that teaching, um, really to be able to hear from the hearts of our elders, their experiences, their relationship with God, and also their relationship with God's Word. So thank you guys. Thank you, Alden, as well. Um, in light of James 3, which is one of the passages that we looked in, uh, looked through in January, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So in light of that passage, I am very thankful and encouraged that these men were willing to sacrifice their time to wrestle with God's word and, and to wrestle with what, um, what would be said that would be edifying and fruitful for our church family. So thank you guys. Uh, to Garrett and Jake and Steve and Alden. I really do mean that. Uh, my time off from teaching has been restful in some ways. It's been pretty chaotic in others, but overall, I am very, very excited to be launching us off into this sermon series uh, this semester for the book of 1 Corinthians. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give us an introduction to our sermon series as a whole. I want to talk a little bit about the city of Corinth, some of the challenges and issues uh, that they went through and what they were wrestling with, and then how Paul enters into this mess of a church and how he addresses the first of the many fractures he's going to talk about through 16 chapters of this letter. The title of our sermon series is called Fractured Church Lessons from Corinth. And the reason is historically Corinth it's an absolute mess of a church. <laughs> like, their picture is not going to go on the cover of a Healthy Church magazine. What you're going to hear from them from is in the back section of that magazine in a little place that's called Horror Stories from Church Planning. Like, that's when you're going to hear about the, the church in Corinth. And the word fractured is intentional here. Fractured doesn't mean paralyzed. Fractures can be healed. They can be repaired. When you're thinking about the human body, micro-fractures in our bones due to stress and even just the regular arduous things that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, it actually can lead to denser, stronger bones as they heal up. And sure, when you have a fracture, you're going to have to give special attention and care to that fracture. But in time, after that fracture has been corrected, after it's been set, those fractures can heal. This is the story of Corinth. It's not a story of the front runner for Church of the Year Award, 
but it's a story of God's incredible patience and persistence in shepherding his church through the messiness of being sinful and broken people gathering together. And then the story of them being transformed into the perfect holy likeness of God. Now, to understand why the church of Corinth was the way that they were, why they struggled in the ways that they did, we have to understand where they had lived. We have to understand Corinth. And so you're going to see a map on your screen here. Corinth was a small city. It was only actually four miles wide, but it stood on the small patch of land that you see there. Uh, it, it separated the Ionian Sea to the west and the Aegean Sea to the east. And Corinth connected these two waterways with, with a harbor on each side of the city. And it was a major trade route. And it operated as a huge shortcut for merchants who otherwise would have to sail all the way around southern Greece, which would take weeks or months to do. And it was through really in, incredibly dangerous waters. Not only did it act as a shortcut for travelers by sea, but as you see there, it's actually linking southern Greece from northern Greece through this one little patch of land. So everyone who would be traveling from one side of the country to the other side of the country is going to go through Corinth. So then Corinth, as a result of being this high traffic, critical crossroads, north and south, east and west, it became a bustling, bustling city. And because of the tolls that would be collected by the ships, they would utilize the harbors as a shortcut, and then the incredible amount of revenue that's generated just from the tourists stopping in as they travel through Greece, Corinth became an economic powerhouse. Its nickname was Wealthy Corinth, and it attracted ambitious entrepreneurs from all around the world. It, it attracted aspiring artists who wanted to present their, their creativity and their skills, and also it, it, it brought in a lot of enterprising politicians who wanted to make a name for themselves. Oh, Corinth was also a uh, house of the Isthmian Games. So every other year, very similar to the Olympics, it brought a lot of foot traffic. It brought a lot of revenue from the entire region into this place. Religiously, it was incredibly diverse. Corinth housed a lot of different cults and places of worship, including temples to Apollo and Aphrodite and Poseidon and a bunch of other Greek gods as well. And all of this created a culture in Corinth of being very progressive, a culture that was highly success-oriented, incredibly competitive. They were wealth-motivated and very, very ambitious. The lifestyle of someone who was living there because of these things would have been a lifestyle of excess. There was a zealous pursuit of all sorts of pleasures, everything that the mind can imagine and the money could buy. And so the narrative that everyone praised and aspired to, the kind of the ethos of that place was being a self-made young money hedonist. That's what it meant to be a Corinthian. David Pryor, who's a biblical scholar, he puts it like this. Corinth became both prosperous and licentious, so much so that the Greeks had a word for leading a life of debauchery, Corinthiazane, that is, to live like a Corinthian. And so they lived so fast and loose, making money and pursuing their fleshy pleasures so adamantly that when someone was living a reckless life of absolute debauchery, people would say, man, you're really living like a Corinthian right now. And one of the saddest things about this is that it wasn't a point of shame for the Corinthians. The Corinth embraced it and wore it as a badge of honor. I think to put it into a little bit of context, Corinth was kind of like, you take Wall Street and everything you know about Wall Street, and you take Las Vegas and everything you know about Las Vegas, and you kind of pull these two places together, and what you would have is Corinth. And it's in this context, Mercy House, where one of the first churches in the world is established. 
Before we even dive into Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we ought to be absolutely shocked and in awe that there even is a church in Corinth to begin with. See, you have to imagine that as these letters, these early letters of Paul are being circulated around to these early churches, like people's eyebrows would raise a little bit when someone would announce, ah, here's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And people would say, Corinth? Uh, That place where you got all those cutthroat business people living in absolute excess, where all those cults and demon worshipers and all those different gods are, that community that just glorifies sex and hedonism, the place where you say that you're from, if if you're living in absolute debauchery, that place, that's where the letter from Paul to a church is? And they'd say, yep, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And so we're going to read it like they would have read it then. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's introduction to uh, this letter to the church at Corinth is pretty much on point with a lot of his other introductions in other letters. He, He first establishes his authority as an apostle, which is really important. This is the reason why we are sitting here this morning reading and meditating on these words 2,000 years later. This letter is not just a series of rambling words or or kind of like a church evaluation document. As a, quote, apostle of Jesus Christ called by the will of God, Paul's words bear the weight of divine inspiration. And what that means is that these words are the words that God had given to his church in Corinth and that are given to us here today. And so as we dive into some of the complex and challenging concepts of this letter, I think that we might be tempted in the weeks to come to read them through our enlightened or our highly skeptical modern lenses today. We might be tempted as we read later chapters to say, well, that's what Paul thinks. Well, that's not really, like, it's not really applying today, to which I think we need to return to this first verse of the letter. And in those moments, we need to feel the weight of Paul's words as he later will be incredibly challenging. And then in those moments, to submit to Paul's words as God's words, even when they're uncomfortable to hear, even when they don't fully make sense, even if we straight up don't like or don't agree with what's being said, at the very least, as Christians, just like the Corinthians would be, being challenged to have the humility to say, well, maybe it's actually me who is getting it wrong. Maybe I don't understand what's going on, as opposed to Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ called by God. Now, I alluded to this already, but Corinth is a fractured church. They are the fractured church that's being alluded to in our sermon series title. And as we read through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we'll see that Paul addresses a ton, a slew of different fractures within the church. In these early chapters, as we read through them, Paul is going to address the fractures in the church's understanding of their own narrative and and how they understand the world around them. He'll then address some of the fractures in their understanding of spirituality and even fractures in their understanding of ministry and discipleship. In chapter 5, he's going to address their sexual sin in light of incest that's happening inside of their church. In chapter 6, he's going to address how people in the church are suing one another because they're not able to settle disputes with one another. 
Later on in chapter 6, he's going to talk even more about their incredibly fractured views on sex and sexuality. In chapter 7, he's going to talk about their fractured views on marriage. In chapter 8, he's going to uh, talk them about the, uh, how to live in, a, in the world around them as born-again, regenerate Christians. And Paul will address their fractured views on communion, on spiritual gifts, even the fractures in their understanding of the resurrection of Jesus. And so the point that I'm trying to make, other than to give you a quick overview of the sermon series and give you some things to look forward to, is that 1 Corinthians is easily, easily one of the most cringy, difficult letters to work through as a church. The church at Corinth is an absolute mess. And Paul, as he pens this introduction, already knows in detail just how jacked up their church is. But with all of this in mind, knowing that, that all of the gross and shameful fractures that exist within the church, knowing all of the secrets that the church had, all the dark corners of their hearts, look again at how Paul opens this letter, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How Paul addresses the church of Corinth is very important. What Paul doesn't do here is he's not holding their brokenness over their heads. He's not addressing them by saying, you who are broken and in need of healing. He's not saying, you who are messed up and who are now in trouble with me, or you who ought to be ashamed and scared, you need to get your lives together. Like when I hear that my daughter Davy, she's three, has kicked my other daughter Chloe, who's six, in the throat, this, this is a true story, it happened last week, my immediate gut reaction is to be like, Davy, girl, you are in big trouble, right? Like hey, that's some of my broken parenting that's, that, that's, that, that's coming out, but what, I, what I'm trying to do is put the fear of God in this girl to, to prep her for correction and discipline and repentance. But that's not what Paul does here. Paul says, you who are sanctified in Christ. Now that word sanctified means to be made holy, to be made like Christ. And it's usually used in the progressive sense, even as we think about the word of sanctification, as in we are being sanctified, or maybe we are experiencing sanctification as a process. But the word sanctified that Paul uses here is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which simply means that it's being used in the positional or, or very definitive way. In other words, it's a binary. Either you are sanctified or you are not sanctified. And so Paul isn't saying you who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus in the progressive sense, but he's saying you who have been fully sanctified in Christ Jesus. See, this is important because what Paul is doing is that he's establishing the identity of the Corinthian church, and it is not rooted in their many, many, many fractures. And he doubles down. Keep reading in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And this is where language study can prove to be so valuable. The concept of being called in the Greek here is not the, in the invitational sense. So he's not saying those who are invited along to be saints, as if this is something that you can decline or you can turn down. The call here is, is the same word for vocation or a calling, and it signifies a definitive inherited role. 
as in Chloe and Davy are called to be my daughters, or that Caitlin is called to be my wife. Paul is saying to you who are fully sanctified in Christ and called to be saints, the NIV translates that word as called to be holy people, together with all those in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See, Paul is addressing them in this way because what, what the struggling Corinthian church needed to know was that regardless of how fractured and how messed up their church was, that the church in Corinth is still God's church. It's still God's church. If you're new to the Bible, if you haven't read the Bible cover to cover, it's incredibly important to know that this is an ongoing theme in God's story of redemption, that God is faithful, that he never quits on his people, and that he always finishes what he starts. And Paul knows this about God. He knows his Old Testament. He knows and understands the comprehensive nature of the gospel. So this is how he opens up his letter to the Corinthians, by reminding them of their identity as individuals, but but corporately as a church as well. And this identity is not based on their sin. It's not based on their own abilities to be holy but by what Christ has done in them as they have experienced salvation by faith in him. See, this understanding of church, it flies in the, in the face of how we as a culture tend to think about church or rank church or test the healthiness of church. But what we're seeing is that church is not a church because of its awesome youth program. That's not what makes a church. Church is not a church because it has an awesome building or because it has an army of volunteers that are ready to go or because it has an AV system that works without a hitch. The identity of God's church is not in having balanced finances or in different worship styles. The identity of our church, Mercy House, is not found in the things that we struggle with together. So God doesn't look at this little church in Amherst as the church that just lost its founding pastor. He doesn't look at us and see, oh, there's a church that's still processing some of those things that are going on, and there's a lot of distrust there. Our church is not defined in, in our struggling and wrestling to have that Psalm 133 unity with one another. And maybe a church that is struggling with our finances, and our finances at best are, are uncertain, along with all the other things that we struggle with in our personal devotions to God. That is not what defines our church. What makes a group of people a church of God is none of these things. And what Paul reminds the church of Corinth and us here today is that a church is a community filled with those who are fully sanctified and made holy because of their complete resting in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That's it. And in order for Corinth to be able to engage with their many flaws and their many fractures in the future, they needed to know this first and foremost. And Mercy House, so do we. So do we. As we move forward both individually and together as a church, we need to know what it means to be a church. And so Mercy House, to the church of God that is in Amherst, Massachusetts, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And man, hear this last part. It's the blessing. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
what Paul's doing is he's putting on a master class in pastoral shepherding. He knows for sure how to be tough, how to admonish, how to correct. He also knows when to be gentle and encouraging. And here Paul is reminding Corinth, and he's reminding us here today, who, are, who, who we are in Christ, so that we can stand firm in that identity as, as we have some challenging conversations about where we're still immature and where we're fractured, where we need to grow. So that when those tough conversations come, we're not discouraged or crushed as, as we address these areas of weakness and messiness in ourselves. And so the importance of having this firm understanding can also help us as we search for churches to be a part of. And so for those of us in this room who haven't made a commitment yet to be members of this church, or maybe for those who are on the fence about whether or not they want to be a part of this church or, or if they're going to leave, or for those who are actually going to be graduating or moving to a different place and church shopping is something that's on the horizon, I want you to remember this, that all churches are messy and have fractures, all of them. Like, I imagine there were people living in Corinth, members of the Corinthian church, who are sitting there looking around, and they're noticing the many, many fractures within their church, and they're thinking, man, maybe we ought to just commute up north and check out FBC Philippi, right? So geographically, Philippi was to the north. Or maybe we should just hop, skip over the Aegean Sea and check out Ephesus Church of Christ over there. I hear they have a killer young women's ministry. The reality is that there will always be things that leave us discontent and even frustrated about the current church that we're in, that we'll see as being done better and are more attractive at other churches. That's just going to be true, no matter what church you're going to be at. And so I'm not saying, okay, you just need to suck it up. You need to be content with where you are. See, some of these things, like the many fractures in Corinth, they need to be reset. They need to be corrected or they need to be healed. And what I'm saying is that if, if you think that, that leaving one church and its messiness and, and going to another church, like it would be naive to think that whatever church you're going to is going to be void of any brokenness or any mess. They may not have the same fractures, but all churches are messy and fractured. David Pryor says, uh, this is the same person I was quoting earlier, he said that the church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. The idea is that there are no perfect churches because we are imperfect, sinful people trying to gather together to do this. And so if you're looking for a church, if you're contemplating becoming a member of the church, remember these first verses here. Look for a church that is filled with people who believe the gospel, who rest completely in the redeeming work of Christ, and then who believe in the scripture as God's words and who yield to it as their ultimate authority. That's kind of Paul's recipe for the church, because honestly, that's all that you need. And that's not just a revelation for me. How do we know this? Well, look at these next verses in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul is thanking God for the grace that God has given this church in Corinth through their relationship with Jesus. 
Verse 6 says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. This is another way of saying uh, they, they have a firm grasp and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, having that firm grasp, working backwards, look at verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. See, it's a bit of a weird ordering there, but when you put it all together, what Paul is saying is, thank you, God, for the grace of salvation that you've given to these people in Corinth through their correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has enriched them and given them the gifts of speech and knowledge. See, speech and knowledge are two bundles of spiritual gifts, which we'll be talking about later on in this series. Speech is, is alluding to the gifts of prophecy, of teaching, of preaching, of evangelism, of speaking in tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And knowledge, which traditionally gives them access to wisdom and insight into spiritual things and discernment and truth. See, Paul sums this all up in verse 7 by saying, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a way to understand this is if you are a community of believers in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are yielding to the word of God as the ultimate authority, you have everything you need to exist as a church until the day that Jesus comes back. And here's the kicker is Corinth has an incomplete and fractured view of spiritual gifts, which is a little bit ironic here. And those get reset and worked out and come to fruition later on. But what he's trying to say here, Paul is trying to say that they collectively as a church, and this is not true for individuals, but collectively as a community of gospel-believing followers of Christ who are equipped with the word of God, they and we have everything we need to do church. Mercy House, this is how we ought to view church. This is not like a sliding scale of competency or maturity. Like It's not a spectrum of house church on one end and then mega church on the other end trying to figure out where we are in that spectrum. We're not trying to categorize churches with small budgets and big budgets or churches with one ministry and churches with 20 ministry or churches with three staff and churches with 50 staff. But we ought to look at churches the way that God sees them. It's a simple binary. We are either a collection of Christ-following saints who submit under the word of God or we are not. This is the core of a healthy church. And this is all we need, Mercy House. Why? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. Who will, and this is speaking about Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Mercy House, let's not forget that we as a church are Christ's bride, that Christ is the head of this church, that he died for the church, and that it, is he, that it is him who is solely responsible for the process by which our church is brought from this point into eternity. And do we believe this, Mercy House? And do we believe that Christ is the ultimate leader of this church? And that our elders are just under-shepherds of that leadership? Do we believe that, that God alone is ultimately responsible for the future of our church? And it's not going to be COVID or disunity or chance that determines the future of our church. Do we believe that it's God who keeps our lights on and our heat 
pumping, then it's not solely up to the generosity or the stinginess of some of the people in our church membership or our donors externally. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. That's how we ought to view church. Mercy House, let this encourage you. Let this not overcomplicate what it means to be a church. Absolutely, there are points of doctrine and theology to be worked out. And Paul's about to do that in 16 and a half chapters here. <coughs> Excuse me. But if we, as a community, continue to love and follow Jesus... And if we, as a community, continue to preach and obey the words of God and Scripture, we'll be okay. We'll be more than okay. Christ has given us grace upon grace upon grace and every spiritual blessing and spiritual gift that we need. And he himself, who is faithful, will sustain us until the end. This is where Paul starts his letter to the Corinthians. But it's not where he ends it. There's still 16 and a half chapter, chapters to get through here. And so being a church is very simple, but it most certainly is not easy. And while we can rest assured knowing that we have everything we need to run this race, and that we have every confidence that we'll be brought to that finish line, we still, together, as a church, need to run this race. And so Paul, having laid the encouraging groundwork for identity, which is in Christ to make sure that we don't get discouraged or frustrated as he coaches us through our mess, he begins by pointing out the first fracture in the church of Corinth, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I, will, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The first fracture within the church of Corinth is an actual fracture in their fellowship with one another. So we see in verses 11 and 12 that it's being brought to Paul's attention that there's quarreling, strife, infighting between different camps that have formed within the church based on preferences and allegiances, allegiances uh, to different leaders within the church. And as these cliques or separate camps are formed, what they're doing is that they're dividing the church, the entire church, all the membership, into separate camps, and they're pitting people against one another. This type of behavior, it, it's absolutely heartbreaking to Paul, who, who starts by appealing to Christ, which had weight to it. And Paul is essentially saying, for the sake of Christ, who, who died for each of us, who saved each of us, through whom we each have redemption, don't be divided. And twice he pleads to them as brothers, which undoubtedly was a reminder that this is not a Christian club with some different factions based on personalities. Like, this is not, it's not like Hogwarts, where there are different houses that you can be a part of, and it's sorted out so that everyone kind of gets along. They don't put all the Slytherins with, with, with the Gryffindors, right? 
That's not what it's like within a church. The, the church of God is a family. You see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and 19. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When there is division in the house of God, there is division in the family of God. And division in a church family is as heartbreaking and sad, as destructive and painful, both personally but also corporately, as division within a biological family. And so Paul pleads with the church in Corinth. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Paul urges them to agree. The word agreement there it literally means to say the same thing. <laughs> but Paul isn't just trying to tell them to become mindless drones, always spouting the same words. It's important to acknowledge, and this is something Paul talks about, that there are differences in opinions and perspectives within the church. This is actually the beauty of a church that's full of God-ordained and God-glorifying diversity. It actually is a good and healthy thing for a church, which is like a body, to have different parts of the body, different perspectives, different giftings, different sensitivities. And so Paul isn't saying, hey, everybody be a foot, right? He's not saying, hey, everybody be a fist. Like, that would be a fun church to be a part of, huh? If everyone was a fist? No, that would be terrible. He's urging them. He's urging them to work together in their differences. Unity, as Paul is talking about it here, is less about being in unison, but more about working together harmoniously with one another. Different parts, different perspectives, different ideas, working together in peace with one another, with grace toward one another. You see, united, end of verse 10 here, in the same mind and the same judgment, so the mind there that we're united in is the mind of Christ. And the same judgment is also translated as purpose of so what you're working toward together. And that's to follow Christ and to glorify him and to make disciples. See, for Corinth, this was not the case. The differences in opinions and perspective, uh, perspectives were not respected. There wasn't harmony happening within the church. There were factions and sides that were being picked, and these cliques actually began quarreling and fighting with one another. And these factions, as revealed by Paul in verse 12, were divided by the different leaders in the early church. Verse 12 says, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And more than just the leaders themselves, because some of these leaders only popped in for a little bit and then left, so it's not like they were ongoing leaders there. The divisions were likely attached to the different perspectives that each leader brought to the church. And so there's going to be a chart here. I want to talk through these different camps. The first is going to be the Paul camp. And this would have been most likely the, the first one to emerge. And since he was the initial church planner, he was their spiritual father who would bring them the gospel and walk them into salvation, uh, he was really significant. But those in Paul's camp, there would have been a strong leaning toward the freedom that we have in Christ. And since Paul's ministry focus was Gentiles, non-Jewish people, it was really important to drive home that you didn't need to be Jewish in order to be right with God. So all those laws, the traditions, all of that, those actually were abolished when the gospel came, which is true. 
But such an emphasis can lead to a broken place of, of cheap grace, thinking that it doesn't really matter how we live our lives now since we're Christians. So we can have all the sex we want with anyone we want. We can drink, we can party, we can cheat, we can steal, because in Christ, there's grace and there's forgiveness. So who cares how we live our lives? If Christ will sustain us and see us to the end, then what does it matter? So that's Paul's camp. And those fractures that are associated with that camp are going to be addressed in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But then there's the Cephas camp. And this would have been backing Peter, which likely represented the Jewish Christians within this church. And this camp would have had uh, their Jewish customs and the traditions bleeding into their faith in Christ, their new faith in Christ. And I think at its best, this camp would have understood the seriousness of our calling to be saints and holy people. But at their worst, this camp would have been very legalistic. Uh, they, they would have overemphasized the outward appearance of holiness and put strict guidelines on what you can do and what you can't do. And Paul addresses these fractures in chapters 6, 8, 9, and 10. And then there's the Apollos camp. And we know a lot less about Apollos than we knew about Paul or Peter. You can actually read about him in chapters 18 and 19, the book of Acts. But what we do know is that he came from Alexandria in Egypt, which was one of the most prestigious and respected intellectual cities in the world at that time. See, our boy Apollos, he was super smart, wicked smart. And we know that he preached with eloquence and with skill, being super gifted in speaking and preaching, along with having great expository skills of the Old Testament. Apollos was, for all intents and purposes, the first megachurch celebrity preacher. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He was a truly faithful, effective preacher of the gospel. But the people in his camp would have leaned heavily into intellectualism, they would have overpraised and sought a lot of those showy, more external gifts that he himself was manifesting. People in this camp would have an air of intellectual superiority over other people, overemphasizing rhetorical ability in debates. They would have uh, really loved the art of finely crafted arguments, and they would have likely been very well read. They would have pursued and praised really high IQs, while themselves having low EQ. And lastly, lastly, we have Christ's camp. And you might think that that's strange, that Paul is calling out people who are saying, I follow Christ. Like, isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't we all be in that camp? The answer is actually no, because Paul is calling them out as one of the camps that's causing division and strife within the church. And see, the way to understand the Christ camp is actually seeing it as a response to these other camps. There would have been a natural reaction in seeing this glorification of all these leaders and responding with, with running in the opposite direction, which is good in some ways unless it's taken to the extreme, which it was. And so people in this camp were highly skeptical of any human leadership. They would have said something like, well, if we have Christ, then why do we need leaders in the church? And so this camp would have been very, uh, very much against authoritarian structures within the church. They, they would have been against having strong leadership within a church, or at least very skeptical and distrusting of it. And people in this camp would overly rely on, on personal spiritual revelation and really struggle being instructed or reproved. This camp would have had an air of spiritual superiority over others around them. So there you have it, Mercy House. These are the four camps that divided the church in Corinth, the camps that caused 
quarreling and strife. And as much as we might want to think that these camps were unique to Corinth, it's hard not to see their relevance today. So if you were to be honest, which camp do you feel that you align with the most? Remember, there's nothing wrong with relating with some of these different camps. They represent very real perspectives. They, they could even be healthy and, and fruitful at best. But of course, there are pitfalls when they're taken to the extreme. So you have those up for you there. Where do you lean, Mercy House? And maybe if you're like me, it just depends on the day of the week. Or maybe it's a combination of some of these different camps. Remember that the main problem is not identifying with these different camps and their perspectives, but holding them so firmly as to quarrel and fight with others in the church over them. Losing our ability to work harmoniously with one another because we can't imagine how they can be right and us wrong or vice versa. We lose the ability to be united in Christ and we lose the ability to strive toward the, the same collective goal of following Christ and making disciples. That's when divisions happen. And so we absolutely should own our convictions, our God-given convictions, but while still maintaining respect for one another, relating with one another with grace and patience, with a desire, a heartfelt desire to build up and to edify those around us in the church. This could be a hard thing to do, no doubt. This is why the church is so fractured today. Not just our church, but the church as a whole. But as we close out this morning in these last verses, hear how Paul is laying out for the argument, why, why it's worth fighting for unity and why churches should not be divided. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. That's a funny verse to me, but he's very honest. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's argument begins with a series of simple questions, and the first one in verse 13 is, Is Christ divided? And the answer is no, he's not divided. Literally, what Paul is asking is, is Christ parceled out? Like, is he chopped up and distributed amongst you guys? Christ is one. Christ is whole and he is complete. This is important to understand that we don't get pieces of Christ. So it's not like Paul's camp gets the grace of Christ, or Cephas's camp gets the righteousness of Christ, and then Apollo's camp, Apollos' camp gets the mind of Christ as if there was actual value to dividing up into these different camps. Those of us who have a relationship with Christ get all of Christ, 100%. We have access to all of him. In his fullness, we get all of him. And there is no practical benefit to being divided. And so that's one simple argument for why there shouldn't be division, is that it's not practically beneficial to be divided. But then Paul goes on, and his second question and argument is a little bit more sharp. He asked, was Paul crucified for you? This is such a simple reminder for Corinth that, that their divisions were a product of idolatry in their hearts. They're holding a person or a school of thought as more important to them than Christ, to which Paul is simply asking them, hey, those of you who are saying that you're in my camp, 
Was I crucified for you? Those who are in Peter's camp there, or maybe Apollos, those of you who are in Apollos' camp, uh, did Apollos die on the cross for you? Those who were so adamantly in Cephas's corner, in Peter's corner, was it Peter who lived a perfect life, who died a death that you deserved, thereby purchasing your salvation and reconciling you back into a perfect relationship with God? Like, was that Peter who did that? I might be a little bit more snarky than Paul is, but I think you're, you're getting the point here. Division is not only impractical and useless within a church, it spits in the face of Christ. It's ascribing glory and honor to someone or something or maybe even yourself when it's God who deserves the glory for bringing people into salvation. See, disunity and division is birthed in a church when our focus shifts away from Christ. When we become so distracted or so enamored in things other than Christ. And it might not be a division based on the personality of your leaders, but I don't know. Maybe it is. In the past five weeks at Mercy House, you just listened to five different preachers here. And so you might be tempted to say, oh man, Garrett is easily the best preacher. He's the most composed and he's the easiest one to follow. You might say, no way, man. Like Steve is the best. He's clearly the wisest of all of them. His stories are always so honest and so practical. Or maybe you're saying, you know what, Jake is the best preacher. He, he's the one with the best sense of humor, and he explains things the best way. Or maybe you're saying, well, what are you guys even talking about? Like, Alden is clearly the best. He, he's the most passionate. He's the most thorough of all the preachers. The, the boy preached for an hour and 15 minutes last week. It's okay to laugh at that. That's very long for a sermon. That's the runtime of Cinderella the movie. I looked it up. And so I say this as a joke, also understanding that this might be a reality for some of us. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, Robert was the best preacher. No one could exposit texts like him or paint a picture of the gospel quite like him. And what do we have now? A bunch of rookies just trying their best. And so you look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Robert crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Tommy, Mercy House, the way that we combat division is by keeping our eyes focused on Christ. And Paul closes this section after pleading with the Corinthians to work harmoniously with one another in their differences of opinions and perspectives by saying this in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's job was to preach the gospel and not to do it in a fancy way that would draw attention to himself, but to preach the simple message of the gospel and let the glory of God and his power do the heavy lifting of salvation. May everything that we do as a church have this purpose and this effect. So may our whole worship service point to Jesus and not draw our gaze away from Jesus. May our children's ministry downstairs point people to Jesus and not draw the gaze of our children away from Jesus. And may the ways that we are each built with our unique gifts, our, our different passions, the things that God has placed on our, in our hearts, help people be pointed to Jesus and not draw our gaze away from Jesus or anyone else's gaze away from him. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Each week, we take communion so that we can keep our focus on Jesus. One of the beautiful things about sharing communion together is that it is a humble act of unity that we participate in every week despite the disunity or the division that we might experience on a weekly basis in this room or with the world around us and with other brothers and sisters. The moment that we take the bread into our mouths, the moment that our lips touch the cup as we drink it, we are reminded that we are together in our collective sin. We are together in our collective need for Christ, but we are also celebrating together the salvation collectively that we have found in Christ. And that in that moment, we are wholly and completely resting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are everything that we need. God, we confess that sometimes it's hard to believe. God, we confess that there are times where it's really difficult to interact with one another. God, our pride and selfishness, when combined with the strong passions and perspectives that you've given us, make it hard sometimes, God, to be compassionate and gentle interacting with grace and patience and peace with one another here in church. And so, God, would you help us to be a church that is striving for unity of mind in you? God, that we would be able to embrace and celebrate our differences and perspective, that we, we would glorify you and worship you in, in the diversity that we get to see in this room. God, thank you that there are people in this room that are vastly different from me, who think very differently from me, who have different gifts than me, God. And even for the tension that sometimes arises when these things come to head. But Lord, would you help us to not be divided over these things? Would you give us a desire to edify and to grow and bring others closer to you? God, I thank you that we as a church, as we place our faith and our trust in you, are wholly sanctified that we are a holy people, that we are your church. And we thank you for this promise that you will bring us to the end and that you've already given us everything we need to be church. So I pray, Lord, for these people. I pray for us as we do church, God. Help us to do it well. Help us to keep our identity in you as we tackle really challenging and tough things in the next 15, 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, God. And Lord, we thank you for the story of Corinth. We thank you that you built a church in the most unlikeliest of places. God, it gives us hope in what you can do here in Amherst. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.